0: Well, we're going through the Ten Commandments. Uh, Last week we began with the first one, and we're on to the second one this week. Uh, And it's about idolatry. It's about uh, idols themselves. And if you've ever been into an Indian restaurant or travelled to maybe a Buddhist country, or even just spent time in some people's houses who aren't from around here, you've probably seen an idol or two sitting in a corner, uh, in an alcove somewhere, uh, up the back of a restaurant, you might have seen some incense burning at, at, at its feet or a little holder, something like that. You might have seen people bowing in worship in a temple, lighting candles, giving small offerings of food. But usually, if we see them, we walk past them with kind of little notice, don't we? Uh or we come back from our travels saying, well, maybe we say how beautiful that was, but usually we come back saying, how quaint, how outdated. We, we whisper because we can't really say that, it's politically incorrect, or how silly. And now we open up this book, this Bible, regarded by billions the world over as God's word to his people today. And we read a statement that these carved or, or molded images are forgiven, uh, forgiven, forbidden by God. And we think, well, what's the purpose of that? And didn't we kind of read that last week, where God said we ha- were to have no other gods before Him, that you shall worship the one and only true God? Well, yeah, we did. And this command is an extension and an expansion of that first one. Last week, Israel is firstly to put no other gods before Yahweh, and now explicitly we're to have no other gods or idols at all. And we think, sure, no problem, let's move on. Can we discuss the third commandment this week, maybe? If we know what we're talking about here. But if we read a little bit closer to the passage that Jude read, Maybe we might get the impression that God's going a little bit overboard here. Did you get that? Because he says we can't have an image of anything. Have you thought that through? Not just of a deity or an angel, things in the heaven above, but anything on the earth below or in the water that's not earth. <laughs> it makes us wonder then, or it makes me wonder... Is God banning, I've brought some props, these pictures? Images of creatures on the earth below. This is off my wall at home. Or is he banning this hippo? A carved image. Well, I like it. I like this hippo. Or possibly this Maasai tribesmen that we have. All of these things, I'll put them down, seem to go against what God is saying, not making any image or likeness of anything in the heavens above, the earth below, or the water. What about, is this going to work? This fertility symbol. Are we allowed to enjoy something like this as a piece of art? These little garden buddhas. They're nice, aren't they? They're smiling. Everyone can go, isn't that fun? Isn't that lovely? What about this cherub? Are we allowed to have, enjoy, look at, use these things for any purpose at all? is this commandment something that we should ignore, A, because it just goes too far, or B, because it's so easy for us to not do. We can tick it off, done that, let's move on. Or are we not even as Christians allowed to take photos of ducks in the pond? I'm going to suggest that neither of these are the case, as you may have expected. Because this is a commandment about the right and proper worship of the one true God. Verse 5, if you have a look in your Bible, I hope you still got that open. Verse 5 shows that these images and carvings that God has prohibited are being worshipped. They're for the purpose of worship. And the reason God prohibits this is that he is, again verse 5, jealous for his own worship. This word jealous is is an interesting word. It's it's kind of the best English word that we have. But when God says he's jealous, he's saying that he's full of eagerness for his own worship. He's demanding of exclusive (coughs) service to himself. He's jealous in, in that way. And so he's prohibiting the worship. And my first point here is that idolatry is about more than just a statue, more than just an image. Here in the West, we're, um, we're extremely disconnected with what, with what scholars call pagan worship, right? If we said the pagans, I don't, do we even know what we're talking about then? If we talk about pagan worship, do we know what that looks like? And I suspect we don't. We're so disconnected from it that we can look at an idol as a piece of artwork, and we can say, isn't that beautiful? I'd like to have that. I went to India many years ago. Anyone been to somewhere like India? A couple of people. Uh, went to India for a few weeks. I went um, and met a Christian friend of ours who, who offered to be our guide. And he took us to a place called Rishikesh, which you'll find in a surprisingly large amount of Australians in Rishikesh. You go to Rishikesh, this is kind of the spiritual capital of India. It's the place where the Ganges is seen to start, and, and you will find all sorts of gurus there. You'll see people lighting candles and floating them down the river doing all sorts of stuff. And while we're in Rishikesh, we saw through the walls the, the fence of a temple. We saw this fantastic statue of this brightly colored, snarling, grotesque, kind of kind of like a gargoyle figure. Uh, inside the temple and we, were, we loved it, we thought isn't that fantastic, it's really cool took some photos of it, pointed it out to each other sort of laughing about it and our, our friend sort of pulled us aside and really I don't know bummed us out <laughs> so it was, slowed us right down and he said um, guys can you, can you not laugh at this because for most of my life This statue, this God that it represents, controlled my life in every way. I served him. I feared him. I I ran from him and I hid from him. So when we think about carved images, we have to understand that these items stand for a whole system of understandings and beliefs that are bound up in it. We're not talking about a physical item. We're talking about a system of worship. That's what comes along with it, a system of worship. They're not art. And it's not only verse 5 that helps us to understand this. The rest of Exodus continually uses or combines the two ideas of idolatry with worship. So in Exodus 23... Uh, God says, you shall not bow down to these gods nor serve them. In chapter 34, he says, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, the the idols, for you shall worship no other god. A little bit later, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. These ideas are bound together. And this commandment expands on the first by saying that this system of worship will have no place among my people. The whole system. Why? Because a system like this corrupts how God's people view God and how they worship him. That's the problem. The system corrupts how they view God and worship him. ...because it's a system that changes how we think about worship. A man called Stuart Douglas has really helped me understand... ...what idolatry is like this week. I've learned a lot. I've really enjoyed my week's uh, study and understanding. I can give you some more information from him. And I just want to help us understand a little bit about the differences. So I want to show you a few problems... ...with idolatry and how it affects worship... And the first one is, is that God, uh, an idol turns God into a vending machine. It's the kind of attitude an idol will make. Having an idol in your house is kind of like having a part of God in your house that you can hold and you can have for yourself. So an, an idol would be crafted, but it wasn't yet an idol. A priest would then come along and he'd... He'd maybe have a special ritual and encant a a special set of words or magic ceremony over this idol. And that idol would then partake of part of God. So part of the divine would then rest in that idol. And all of a sudden, that idol was now a way that you can connect with God right in your house. It's kind of like um, a guarantee of God's presence. God cannot leave you, he cannot escape you, he's there wherever you bring him along with you. It's kind of like, have you ever heard, you know, the joke um, that, oh, what was it? Oh, I shouldn't have I, should have, I didn't plan on telling you the joke, I won't tell you the joke. But there's this whole idea that um, you can have a phone line to God and New Zealanders always think that they're closer to God and so they've got a because of the landscape, and so the phone calls, I can't remember what the joke was, I shouldn't have even tried. But the idea that you've got a phone line to God that God would always answer would be a really appealing one, isn't it? And that's kind of what it's like having an idol in the house, a direct link to God that he's forced to answer all the time. Whatever you said or did in the presence of the idol was now done in the presence of that God in heaven. You had an audience with your God that forced him or her to listen and respond. Another way that idolatry Corrupts worship. Is it promote worship? Is it promotes selfishness? See, gods back then were known for being able to do anything except feed themselves. They couldn't nourish themselves. So, if you feed your god by putting some little offering out in front of him, he now owes you something. You do something for him; reciprocation is expected. The more you do for them, the more they do for you. Worship is no longer about God, but it's about yourself and what you can get out of it. That's what it turns worship into. Idolatry also promotes uh, apathy or idleness in worship. See, when it comes to an idol, you don't have to keep a covenant with these gods. A covenant that encompassed all of life, something that called you to to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. No, that's too hard. All you have to do with your God is provide him three square meals a day. Set something aside for him before you ladle it out to the kids. You don't have to journey all the way to Jerusalem to worship there in the temple. You can just stay at home and do it there. Another problem with idolatry is that it is in no way countercultural if you accept an idol instead of Yahweh you don't have to do something that the neighbors will laugh at you just do what they're doing they plant their crops in a special pattern to appease the gods well you can do that right alongside them you want a better lambing season we'll use his recipe that guarantee you, you get you get your goat and a baby goat and you boil it in the milk of its mother and that's some sort of special magic ritual and the birthing season will be fantastic. Bound to work it all out. I mean, who doesn't believe in a bunch of different gods? Sure, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he can be your national god. Every nation's got a different one of them. But when it comes to your family god, don't you want to choose someone who's going to help you out for your family god? Why don't you choose something concrete and visible for your personal God to have in your bedroom? Like you can do that, keep your national God, but add to it these these other wonderful layers of gods. Why be the laughing stock of your community? It's so easy to fit in. Idolatry also promotes indulgence. Is your God a bit of a stick in the mud? Asking you to provide for the poor, the orphans, the widows. Come on over to us. He won't ask you, our gods won't ask you to give up something significant when you worship Him. Come to our place for the weekend. Our God tells us to stuff ourselves full with all the meat we can eat to worship Him. You don't have to give it to your priest. When you eat it in front of the idol, He eats too. He loves it when you pig out so much you can't move. It's fantastic. Let's go do that. Drink until you can't remember how much you've eaten. It's generosity to God when he enjoys every sip that you take. Talking about a Debbie Downer of a God, with our God, you can come to the temple and sleep with the priestesses. Leave your wife at home. This is, in fact, one of the best ways to get God to bless you. Leave your wife at home and spend the day encouraging God to give you more crops. After all, what's sown in heavens, reaped in the paddocks. When you engage in acts of fertility with a representative of God, that priestess, it's encouraging God to engage in acts of fertility down here in your paddocks. So the point with this commandment was never to prevent us from making a painting of a majestic elephant or a photo of a stunning landscape or stopping you from having some beautiful artwork on your shelf. The point is that everything about and surrounding the practice of idolatry promotes a system of worship that twists and distorts and distracts from the true worship of the one true God. Idolatry is going to corrupt and distort the way we think about what worship is and the way they think about who their God is. God is revealing himself in this covenant we're just beginning and in, in the Bible, to be a God who is completely different from the gods of Egypt or Canaan or the rest of the Near East. And worship of this God is going to look completely different from any system of idolatry. That's my first point. Idolatry is about more than just a statue and now idolatry twists and distracts from true worship. And here, what we don't want is the ideals and philosophies of our culture twisting and distracting us from true worship and service of the one true God. So for us, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Our our culture doesn't go in for the, the physical idols, as we saw last week. It goes in for philosophies and beliefs, cultural ideals and it tries to distract us, doesn't it? It tries to twist our worship. The biggest way it does this is to keep pounding at us every week to tell us that God is dead. I don't know if you felt this. God's a quaint vestige of a bygone era. The most intelligent people with the best education, they've moved past all of that. And honestly, we're just sorry that that's the type of crutch that you need to survive in this world. Another way our culture distracts and twists our worship of God is to confine it, to to restrict it, to compartmentalise it to just the Sunday service or or even better, to just Christmas and Easter or lunch down at the pub. We're tempted to prioritise sport, rest, family over gathering with God's people. We're tempted to let other life goals like pleasure, status, and finances, become higher goals than God. You can have your national God, you can be a Christian, but for your family God, surely it's got to be sport, and for your personal God, surely it's got to be pleasure. And it used to be that the pub was the place where you couldn't discuss religion, right? That was the only out-of-bounds place, but that's expanded now to the point that everywhere outside of your own home is a place where religion is anathema. And uh, maybe you've noticed this become re- really overt reason- recently with Israel Falau. This has been in the news for a long time now. still going on. You'd be a good Christian, is he? That's fantastic. Good on you, you champion of the game. We'll accept that. But don't you dare let that creep into how you think, what you say, how you act. Your faith has to be in this little compartment and never come out. And let other Christians be warned says our culture. We will not tolerate any Christianity that does not conform with the idolatry of this nation. The idol that everything is right and good. That all varieties of sexual identity and expression are holy and pure. That the human life can be conveniently ended when it's no longer useful to us. The idol of materialism and hedonism that's sought after no matter the impact on third world nations and the economy of those people. But we must not let our culture twist our view of God and what he loves and commands. Sadly, our culture isn't the only one that does this. Um, the church can do it too. Have you noticed this? We can also have a twisted view of who God is. Uh, we, can, we call this distorted theology. Uh, there are some big ones and we label them heresy. Heresy. Uh, things like the, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is God. That's a big distortion of who God is, of who He teaches us He is, He uh, is. Modern prosperity gospel is pretty sim- similar. The idea, the theology that no believer should ever be sick or poor or in pain, that's not the type of God that we have. He's a God who wants to bless you no matter what. He's the God that will bless you if you're faithful. Uh, the, The Vatican, in 1964, I'm surprised it was this early, in 1964 declared, there's another heresy, that Muslims, together with us, adore the one merciful God. Heresy. What a distortion. They don't believe in God. But this also crops up in smaller, more common attitudes amongst us. When we say things like, I can't accept a God who, my God could never, that can't be the way to understand that passage because if we're unwilling to accept or even to attempt to understand a passage or doctrine, which we don't like, or which we balk at, or which we just cannot align with our experiences or worldview, then we don't actually believe God is who he says he is. We don't actually believe any longer that scripture is our highest authority for declaring, telling us, showing us who God is. We all of a sudden believe that our worldview, our personal ethics, our understanding of God is higher than Scripture, and we will interpret Scripture by what we believe or by what our culture tells us. Our culture's worldview is higher, our culture's ethic is higher, our logic is stronger than Scripture. That's distorted theology but there's also distorted worship. Now, a particular, there's a lot of things we could drill down on here, but we, we don't have the time. Uh, we could talk a lot about this. I'm, I'm going to choose to talk about um, particularly what we do on a Sunday or, or maybe at home as well. I'm going to talk about pictures or images of God, particularly images of Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, I showed some pictures earlier of animals and whatnot, um, but we get pictures of Jesus too. Something like this can be found in many different homes and in most Roman Catholic churches and schools. And most of us here would agree that this is wrong. I hope you can see it. We don't seem to be very well aligned this morning. Most of us would agree it's wrong. And firstly, because it's grossly inaccurate. For some reason, uh, Jesus isn't the brown Middle Eastern man here. He's whiter than I am, and that's saying something. He's got blue eyes. He doesn't have the clothing or the hairstyle uh, that, we, that we know of in the day, and he's glowing. Is he standing behind a light, in front of a light? I'm not sure. Secondly, they've effeminised and emasculated him. He appears to have on lipstick and rouge. I don't know why. And looks more like a bearded lady than a man. This is wrong, but we have images like this in our services. We just saw some, right? We just had an angel. Why? How can we call that one wrong and yet put this one up week after week? Well, myself and the other elders believe that there are two major differences between the two. And the first is detail. There's a big difference between what these two images... Ah, there we go. Between what these two images are saying about God here. Can you see them both? There's a big difference in detail in what it portrays about God. One is designed to portray a principle and the other is designed to describe The person of Jesus. We believe that one assists the portrayal of events, while the other is designed to describe what Jesus looked like, to inform our understanding of his physical form. Which leads us to the second major difference the detail and type of representation in the second one, is designed to facilitate worship and even be an object of worship, distorting the true worship of Jesus. So, I happened to be in the op shop this week and this is what I rescued from the bin. This is a prayer alongside an image of Jesus. I'm doing this a lot today. (laughs) This is designed to focus the attention of the prayer to this abomination of the image of our king. Designed to describe the object of our worship and change the way we worship God. This is the focus of our prayer all of a sudden. Which is the big problem with idolatry in the first place. But this type of image is stuck with the church, hasn't it? Stuck through generations. This, this is thrown out this week. People still have this stuff in their home. I don't know if it's thrown out because it's gone all mouldy around the edges or what, but this is still in people's homes. Which brings us briefly to verses 5 and 6. Second half of verse 5 onward. God here is telling his people that this type of sinfulness is Generational. He's saying that if you step into idolatry, it's going to be passed on down to the third and fourth generation. And because I'm jealous, because I'm eager for my own worship, because I demand exclusive service to myself, I will punish them for their idolatry, God says. However, his greater desire is described in an overwhelming contrast here. Nowhere else in the Bible... Do you find such a contrast between three and four generations and thousands? What a contrast. His desires, his deepest desires are not to punish the three to four generations, but to bless for thousands of generations those who worship him alone. And to make that easy for us, he hasn't given us a picture, he's given us a man. He's given us Jesus, the exact representation of the Father. Not visually, I'm sure, but in his character, who he is, what he does, what he loves, what he treasures, his holiness. The good news is, is that we don't need an idol to have a clear conduit to God. We have Jesus. Jesus. Although being a disciple isn't easy, we have a simple way to serve him through our saviour. And it's a way that doesn't come with the selfishness of idolatry. It doesn't bring apathy or indulgence. It's a faith which calls us to stand higher than our culture. A faith that is, pardon me, not content with what is lesser, what is easy, what is subjective, A faith that has a clear, singular, intense focus on Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. It's a faith that recognises that when we have a distorted or distracted picture of him, we're lacking in the way, the truth and the life. Will you pray with me about this together? Dear Father, uh, we acknowledge that our culture no longer has physical items, physical idols, and a, a system of idolatry that's overtly seen as such for us to walk past and ignore. Our culture has something far more subtle. It has a way of viewing the world and ourselves and you that is completely distorted just as much as idolatry was. And we pray, Lord, that you would prevent that worldview from working its way into the church and through the church. We pray, Lord, that you would give us at the hub and in each one of our homes and hearts a perfect picture of Jesus, which will give us a perfect picture of you, our Father. Lord, we thank you that you've preserved that picture in Scripture. We thank you that his spirit is here with us to lead us towards him. We pray, Lord, that you would keep our worship and our understanding of you pure and clear so that we might honour you and keep your commandments. Pray this for your glory, Lord. Amen.